to talk to you about consolation. It's one of the most important things we can do for each other. And it's just about the most difficult. When we try to console ourselves, we can try to console other people, words usually fail us. And we just can't seem to reach across the gulf that separates us from someone else's sorrow or even from our own. I, I recently visited an old friend of mine who just lost his wife. They'd been married for 50 years. I couldn't think of anything to say, so I brought him a cake from the cafe where he and his wife used to go when they were courting. And then he said, if only I could believe I would see her again. He wouldn't allow himself to believe in an afterlife. And so the religious faith that's consoled people for thousands of years was closed to him. I kept him company, but mostly in silence. Being there, I hope, was some kind of comfort to him, but it was certainly no consolation. To comfort someone, you don't really need words at all. Just being there, offering them a slice of cake may be enough. But consolation is different. It's about giving meaning to suffering so that we can recover and find the hope to go on. But there's some losses, like losing a partner that you've been with for 50 years, which just leave us inconsolable. Consoling ourselves is even more difficult because it's not easy to tell ourselves the truth. When we fail, we tell ourselves we did our best. But really? When we lose a person we love, we tell ourselves that our love for them will never die. But really? In failure and grief, we confront bitter truths, and this can leave us shell-shocked, so that when we look in the mirror, we barely recognize ourselves. You can't think about consolation unless you begin by admitting that there's some experiences that just leave us inconsolable, just as you can't write honestly about hope until you've lived a moment when hope is gone. But when we do admit um, that we're inconsolable, we begin to understand why we need consolation so much. And when we admit to feeling hopeless, that's when we can feel that hunger for hope return. When I begin, began thinking about consolation years ago, friends looked at me kind of oddly, you know, are, are you okay, Mike, uh, anything wrong? No, I said, I'm fine. I'm just interested in exploring this moment when we need words more than ever, but they fail us. My idea was to find words that wouldn't fail us. They had to be somewhere in the Bible and the Psalms and the work of the great ancient philosophers. So the past four years, I've been searching for these words from the deep recesses of the biblical past right up to the present day. At first, when I began thinking about consolation, I was alone with my thoughts, but when COVID hit, and we all went into lockdown, suddenly everyone was looking for it. The internet was just filled with artists, writers, painters, actors, poets, politicians, all trying to make sense of our shared feelings of confusion and anger and fear. As the numbers who died went from the incredible to the mutely accepted. I remember an orchestra in Rotterdam performing Beethoven's Ode to Joy, each musician in their own apartment playing together on cues on their earphones. And a famous pianist 
performed Beethoven's sonatas from his apartment in Berlin every night. Poets declaimed, rappers rapped, intellectuals pontificated. All in all, the pandemic has been a terrible experience, but we need to remember how it produced some amazing new rituals of consolation. Remember those nights when we stood outside in our doors in masks and clapped the nurses and doctors fighting to save lives in our hospitals? Remember those amazing Italians and Spaniards who stood on their balconies every night and sang to each other? These rituals of consolation, I think, expressed how much we needed to be with each other, but also how much we needed to believe that we could beat the pandemic together and that there'd be a future beyond the lockdown. Now that we're into our fourth wave, we're still waiting for that future, but it does finally seem to be on the horizon. As I watched these invented rituals, I saw that consolation has two dimensions, solidarity in space, being together with others in the here and now so that we can share meaning and comfort, and solidarity in time, reaching back into the past to share what great artists and thinkers have understood about loss and fear and grief. Dark times like a pandemic lock us in the present that seems at first to be without a past or without a future, but we weren't the first, surely, and we won't be the last to go through a pandemic. Just consider the great Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, who just taken power when in AD 165, a plague swept through his empire and carried away nearly a third of his people. The great book that he wrote and that many of you have read called The Meditations, I think needs to be understood as his struggle to give meaning to this catastrophe, a catastrophe as it turned out that claimed the life of the emperor himself. No wonder that he wrote that fate was cruel and capricious and that all we could do was to meet it with firmness and courage. And then there's Michel de Montaigne, my favorite, the great French essayist who in the 1580s had to flee his own home to escape a plague that was devastating the region around Bordeaux where he lived. Montaigne and his family survived and he learned by watching the peasants dying quietly in the fields around him, he learned to think of death differently as something natural, inevitable, something even to be greeted as a friend. And he never gave up hope that he and his own family would survive. Montaigne and Marcus Aurelius's calm in the face of catastrophe was all, the more, was all the more impressive, given that they faced the pandemic with none of the weapons at our disposal, the masks, the vaccination, and that army of medical researchers who keep advancing our knowledge. Marcus Aurelius and Montaigne are interesting for another reason. They asked themselves whether philosophy was up to the task of providing meaning for the suffering they saw all around them. Their shells were stocked with the wisdom of the ancients, and one of the greatest of those ancients was Boethius, a Roman senator who faced execution for defying a barbarian king, and he wrote a great book called The Consolation of Philosophy. Well, the title was, in fact, a question. Can philosophy actually console? By the end of his life, Michel de Montaigne, one of the most learned men of his time, began to question whether it could. For what actual redemptive or hopeful meaning could you give to a plague? Montaigne concluded that it was not philosophy, 
not doctrines about life that console, but life itself, its rituals and routines, and the people we live it with who provide us with the meaning we need to keep going, and whose love and care give us the hope to carry on. Marcus Aurelius, Boethius, and Montaigne were all courageous enough to question whether we can ever find meaning for suffering so that we can bear it better. But none of them ever gave up trying. In dark times, we can't afford to ignore these voices from the dead because they've been through it all. They know what we're going through. And we're not alone. And we never have been. Let me tell you one final story and then I'll, then I'll stop. It's about a wise woman, a British nurse who became a physician. She'd read all these philosophers and concluded like them that words alone were not enough. So she set out to do something, to find a way to console patients who were facing their own death. Her name was Cicely Saunders and she founded the hospice movement and lived to see her model of palliative care adopted in hospitals and care homes around the world. I met Cicely Saunders in South London at the end of her life. She's a wonderful tall woman with a brisk upper-class accent and infectious laugh and a deep intelligence that was based on a life spent listening by the bedside of the dying. What she learned was that pain for the dying was not just physical, it was spiritual. When Cicely asked one of her female patients where the pain was, the patient whispered, all of me is wrong. If all of me was wrong, then palliative care had to address what was really bothering dying patients, not just the pain or the fear, but the longing to make things right with their families, to be reconciled with estranged children, to make provisions for the future, to settle old quarrels. Cicely understood that one essential meaning of consolation was to make your peace with life by making peace with those around you. There needed to be a place for this and there needed to be time. Her hospice pioneered drug regimens that would take away the patient's pain, but leave them conscious so they could be with their families. Consolation needed a place, so Saunders created the, those cheerful hospice rooms where patients can be with their families. Consolation needed time, so she cleared the doctors and nurses away so patients could be with their families. Cicely Saunders did more than anyone I know to make dying bearable by creating a space and a time for consolation. She understood something profound about life, that we live for each other, and that even in the hour of our death, there's still something we can do for those we love. To take away their fear of dying by showing them, if we can, that dying might not be as hard as we thought. And that may be the most consoling thought of all. She was a wise woman, Cicely Saunders. And when she died in 2005 in her own hospice at the age of 87, we can only hope that she had the good death that she made possible for so many millions of people around the world. Thanks for listening.